0: Thank you for joining us today for Tedco Talks, a new series featuring thought leaders in economic development from across the state of Maryland. Join Tedco CEO, Troy LaMail Stovall in thought-provoking conversations with regional leaders about the future of Maryland's innovation ecosystem. In this episode, Troy is joined by Jeff Cherry, founder and executive director at Conscious Venture Lab. Listen now to learn more about Jeff and the role he plays in supporting Maryland and DC's entrepreneurial ecosystem.
1: Greetings everybody. Troy Lamel Stovall here, CEO of Tedco, Maryland's Entrepreneur and Innovation Hub. Uh, here today, we'll I'll introduce Jeffrey in a minute, but uh, I'm sitting here, you know, we're taping this right after uh, Labor Day, we're right into the middle of football season. Um, uh, and, but but more importantly, this week, and for those of you who may not know, is National HBCU Week, National Historically Black College University Week, that actually ends today. So I'm wearing my Jackson State jersey. For those of you know, I used to work at Jackson State. Very proud of all HBCUs and our four HBCUs here in Maryland. Could could be we're doing a lot of great stuff with them. But I have to represent, you know, the HBCUs. Jeff's wearing his Catholic University, but that's all right. were We're we're doing we're, yeah. we're, we're celebrating HBCUs. <laughs> uh, but um, I am here with Jeff Cherry. Uh, who leads a, a, a great organization called Conscious Venture Lab, which you will we'll learn a whole lot more about. But Jeff, first of all, thanks for joining me today and, and hanging out with me today.
2: Troy, my man, it's good to see you. You know, yes. I, was, I was going to Howard across the reservoir from Catholic, but I wasn't smart enough they wouldn't let me in.
1: So. <laughs> I'm sure I, I, you folks would love, love hearing that part. <laughs> So, Jeff, you have had uh, uh, just an amazing career. Uh, but I, I want to focus on um, the athletic, your athletic side, if I, if I, if I may, for, for a minute. Yeah, so uh, as I understand you, you're a, uh, a recovering football player uh, and and you, and you did some taekwondo. So tell, tell folks about your football career.
2: Well, um, you know, I hope I'm going to grab something because I hope <laughs> my, my friend of mine, my friend Ralph Fusillo, who went to high school, I hope he watches this. I'm going to send it. So that's my plaque. Oh, my big time! Medford high school hall of fame. Um, and don't worry. I'm not really reliving these glory days. People, folks. <laughs> I only do that because Troy asked me to, um, but uh, you know, I, uh, I, I love football all my life. Um, I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to play football. Uh. I went down to the university of Miami And I saw cheerleaders that were bigger than I was. So I figured I wasn't going to make it at Miami. Uh, um, So I came back and was coming through uh, Baltimore where, you know, my mom's family is from Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So we were we were going to uh, uh, through Baltimore and uh, the folks from Catholic U had come to my high school to uh, to talk to us. And my dad and my mom and I just went, drove down to D.C., went to Catholic. Um, they had a good architecture program, small time, you know, college football. But um, I would, I got to play all four years I was there, and I wouldn't have oh, changed wow. it. I wouldn't have changed it for, for What, what position did you play? I played defensive back. I was a cornerback, um, played with some great guys that I'm still uh, dear friends with today, you know, 30-some-odd years hence, so. Um, it was just, uh, it was an amazing experience. Um, you know, just any, any time you're, you're a part of a team and you're part right. of a team of people you care about. So it was an amazing experience. I wouldn't have changed it for the world. So, so how
1: many interceptions you get, man? How many interceptions, career interceptions you get.
2: Uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I was, I was a goose egg in, in college <laughs> because I, uh, I injured myself. I, you know, I'd never been injured. Uh-huh. Um, uh. I had never been injured playing football. And my freshman year, I partially severed my Achilles tendon. And then the next year I, uh, I, I, I I tore my, um, I tore my rotator cuff. So uh, while I played a lot um, I I usually was playing the, 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 the uh, the sort of fifth back. um, Mm -hmm. So, so the nickelback, so more, more, more tackles and a few fumble recoveries than I had an interceptions. <laughs> I
1: understand. All right. But you got, yeah. you got that Hall of Fame. Because you went to school in New York, right? You're from New I York. I
2: did. I went to high school in New York, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha,
1: yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So then from there you took up Taekwondo.
2: Yeah, it's something I was always really interested in. I always wanted to, do. I was always wanted to be uh, interested in the martial arts. So I, I started late. I started taking martial arts when I was in my 20s but I studied for a long time. I did um, 12 years of Taekwondo, first of Black Belt, and then I started um, Krav Maga, which is the uh, martial arts of the Israeli Defense Forces, which I did yeah. for a long time, which was really interesting too. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, um, I'm, I'm probably too old to do either of them now, but, uh, you know, I can still get around the gym if I have to. So how
1: does that, because i I'm- how does that help you, Jeff, in what you do? Again, we're going to learn more about, it. but how does that help you from a mental focus, from a stamina? How does how does that help you uh, do what you do?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I, um, it is, if you if you study with the right people, and I think that I have over the years, I studied with a woman <clears throat> out of DC by the name of Carol Middleton, who was like the you know, martial arts woman of the year for like five years running. She actually started a women's only self-defense uh, school. And I was of a, 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 the class of the first men that she accepted into the program. So we had a whole different sort of ethos, right? Yeah. So the one thing that I learned uh, in, in Taekwondo for sure in the martial arts is that um, it wasn't about fighting. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It was about discipline. It was about it was about learning to understand. Right. I mean, it was about learning to control your body. So I think that I became, uh, as I progressed from you know from a beginner up to a black belt, the one thing I noticed, I became much more calm. I You know, oh. I was a, you know, a football player and, you know, you know, knucklehead when you were younger. Right. But as I got older and as I studied, uh, studied martial arts more, I, I became much more centered, much more calm, you know, much. It, it was a, it's a whole it's a whole way of thinking, of it, particularly when you're doing Eastern Marshall, you know, Taekwondo from Korea or karate from, from Japan, those sorts of things. I think it's a philosophy about how to live life. Right. Yeah. And I think that, so that's a big part of it. And then even in, in Krav Maga, I think it is a, it's a, it's a level of confidence that you, you know, because even in Krav Maga and I went to some really, um, I studied with some really great guys that, you know, come here from Israel, um, that, um, It's about learning how to protect yourself. I mean, the whole thing was, um, I I, I started a place called the the Fighter's Garage in Alexandria, you know, know, so a regressive name. But they were like, look, the last thing we want to do is get into a fight, right? The first, you know, at all costs, you want to stay out of a fight if you can. You want to get away from the situation. You don't want to be in dangerous situations. That's the last thing you want to do. However, (laughs) if you're going to be in a dangerous situation, we're going to show you how to protect yourself, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so I just think that that whole mindset of this ain't about fighting. You want to learn how to protect yourself. You want to learn how to use the things around you. You want to learn all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you really want to be—you know—you really want to be aware of your surroundings. You want to be calm. In dangerous situations, you want to be calm, and you know when everything else, you know that they're all saying when everything else is going crazy around you, your ability to stay centered and stay calm. And the more that you know, the easier it is for you to do that. So that's sort of what I I take away.
1: And do and you use that, that that discipline and that calmness in in business as you as you have your as you do negotiations and work with the entrepreneurs and banks and yeah. the have-
2: No, no question, Troy. I mean, look. I mean, when when you're um, especially in the Krav space, when you're doing when you're sparring Krav Maga and you got punched in the face ten times yesterday, <laughs> you know, talking, you know, negotiation with a banker is nothing. <laughs> I I just had a guy that was on, you know, that was 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 in the Israeli defense forces, you know, ripped my shoulder out of the socket yesterday. What what are you gonna do to
1: me? <laughs> Not so, allow, really, I'll rip
2: your shoulder out. <laughs> yeah, so it was, so yeah, there's a, there's a calm, I mean, you know, that, like, there is, uh, and sometimes you talk to some of those guys, particularly in the Krav Maga, and they've been in some rough situations, right, we train yes. with a lot of police officers, a lot of military guys, and like, um, that we do are important but, you know, uh, you know, there's a there's a perspective that you get from it, I think.
1: No question. No question. No question. Well, you, you've given us a little bit of your journey already. Because You know what? One of the things I, I always like, uh, particularly someone like you, Jeff, who is very accomplished and, and doing some great stuff for the state of Maryland, for, for Baltimore. But your journey is important. Right. And, and, and like you to spend just a few minutes, not as we discussed, not so much a resume recite, but more of a, you know, how you came to be and how you overcame some things and, and, and either how sports or somebody in your life or something in your life kind of helped you get to get you on the path to, 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 to be down this path of making the impact, the impact type of investor that you are.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's, I, you know, I, I, we come from a, you know, I have three sisters and we come from a really, really close family, um, very middle-class, you know, sort of New York, um, But I think that um, uh, the beginning of that had probably had a lot to do with my grandfather. Um, And some people who listen to this may know this, the first, when we, when I first started the company that has now, you know, evolved into conscious venture partners, we saw a company called Marion Porter um, LLC and Marion Porter was my grandfather's name MP. Uh And a lot of the things that we do, like, our investment management firm, you know, if you have a, a, a venture capital fund, you have a general partner, just have a separate investment manager. The investment manager is Cleo Porter, and that was my grandmother and my grandfather's name. So um, a lot of, I think, you know, a lot of that, that journey, if you will, Troy, had to do with, um, with my family, particularly my grandfather, um, my dad was a hard worker. We just saw hard work around us all the time. My mm-hmm. grandfather was a was a, a you know a construction guy. I was in the labor's union in New York. My mom was you know worked in a probation officer. So we just saw hard work around us all the time. But I remember I the day I graduated from high school, and we were living on Long Island by then. And everyone in my class, they were all going to the beach the next day. Mm-hmm. Right, we're out of school, going to the beach. And uh, we were having a graduation party at my house. And my dad said, no beach for you tomorrow. It's, it's, you got to go to work tomorrow. And I was a, I, my first job, I was a bike messenger for Solomon Brothers. People asked me about the investment business. And I said, yeah, I worked on Wall Street once. I was a bike messenger. Um, <laughs> that was my first job. Um, and I had to get up and take the bike on, this, on the Long Island subway and go into the city and all that nonsense. And I was pissed. I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to, I want to go to the beach the next
1: day. Exactly. Exactly. And
2: I was stalking around the house or something. My grandfather came over and he said, you know, what's the matter? And I'm like, well, everyone's going to the beach. I want to go to he's like, boy, he goes, You gotta he goes, you know, in this family, you go to work. He's like, You don't want to grow up and be like me. And I was like, I was stunned because I didn't want anything else but to grow up and be like him. Mm. But you know, but he had, you know, he worked. He started working when he was, you know, I think he he left home to go work on a farm, you know, when he was like 12 years old or some nonsense like that. And had run a, you know, it was a blast form and building, you know, New York City subway tunnels and tunnels at the Pentagon. So he had a hard job and a hard life. And he was just like, oh, you want to you wanna transcend, you got to work hard. I like that. Um, yeah. So I think it just it was about... The way that my family is, you know, from from all the way down from my grandparents, my great-grandparents who I knew, my great-grandmother who grew up here in Baltimore. Um, it was just a hard-working group of people. Lots of women in our family that didn't take no mess. So, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yep. Old school, <laughs> so, black, old
1: school black mamas. We'll, uh-huh. we'll, get a, we'll get a switch. People are
2: about to get don't, a switch. Get go a switch. Go outside. You know, I remember being in Fairfield here in Cherry Hill. My great grandmother said, "Go outside and get me a switch." Yep. I'm like, "That's the craziest." I'm going to go outside and get you a switch to whoop my ass. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> and go. don't come back with so little branch. No, Who's no. Don't that? that, <laughs> <telling you, "Go laughs> get me a switch. I mean, get me a switch. You know. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of that going on in our family, but you just learned, you know, I mean, I, you know, we just learned that that's what was important in life, I think. You yeah, it's not
1: like you had a really strong village around you, but, you know, and, and, I, and I talk about this with my friends and, you know, we, and I grew up in Texas and Houston, Texas, and we all had that strong, but we, we got to be successful. We got, you know, gotten to move away and I don't have that strong family unit around us. My wife is the same way. My wife, you know, uh, she has uh, her, her dad. My father-in-law is one of 20, 22, and so she wow. grew up with a lot, I know, mom is one, my mother-in-law is one of nine, so yeah, she's yeah. and so, but she grew up around it, but now we live here in the D.C., and we don't have that same family connectivity. Yes, we have a lot of good friends, but we don't have which, a lot of what you described when our kids got to know their grandparents and their great-grandparents and, and the like. I just yeah, think right. our success has taken away something that 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 I had.
2: And it, it, it yeah, no, like that's it. interesting. I mean, I think, you know, even even when I was growing up, I mean, it's got to be worse now. But I I knew three of my great grandparents.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. And that that is is definitely not the norm. Right. So we had a big family. Some people had kids young. But we had a lot and a lot of cousins and nephews and everyone around. And, you know, we would come to Baltimore and stay in this little. It was probably a two bedroom you know, shotgun Shock in Fairfield and, and, and Cherry Hill, and I thought it was a mansion. And there was there was probably twenty of us in it's there. In
1: there, yeah. And you should learn how to share one. It's funny how you can share one bathroom. Now nah, I got what four or five bathrooms house, and we can't figure out how to make four or five bathrooms work. You know, I I don't get it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, well, you you've already mentioned it. I, I love the name of, of what you do, Conscious Ventures. I think that's exactly. I think the name says it all. But once you tell our, our listeners about Conscious Ventures.
2: Yeah, so a little bit of the background, as you know, um, I'm an architect on CAFQ, study architecture. um, And of course, the 20 year business an architecture business that we morphed into more of a management consulting company. Mm -hmm. And over the course of that, um, running that business, we um, just, you know, to see the emergence of what we now call stakeholder capitalism, right? the companies that we were working with that were the most successful were not the ones that were focused myopically on shareholders, but they were the ones that were focused on creating value for all of their, all of their stakeholders. I got really enamored with that, the, 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 the honor of being a consultant uh, on a book called Firms of Endearment with a guy named Raj Sisodia, who was a marketing professor at Bentley College. He's now at Babson at the entrepreneurship school. And then he subsequently wrote Conscious Capitalism with John Mackey from Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. That sort of started me on this path of how to think about business and how to think about capitalism and the practice of capitalism. We were exposed to Raj and a bunch of other people, a guy named Ed Freeman, who's a professor down at University of Virginia, with this idea that there was a new narrative about the practice of business going on in the world, that it wasn't just about a bunch of greedy little bastards trying to do each other in, that it was actually that the the best businesses were looking at uh, a more holistic way of how to create value for society. So that was sort of what set me on this path. We ended up selling that consulting company after working on conscious capitalism with Raj. Um, And, uh, you know, we, uh, my partner, a guy named Rick Frazier, another Catholic you guy, and I started thinking about how could we support businesses that were thinking that way, that were thinking about more holistically about how do we su- support our employees, suppliers, community, customers, environment, in addition to shareholders. So we we just sort of said we want to go into the into the into the belly of the beast. So we started a hedge fund. And the hedge fund was about how do we invest in companies that were thinking that with that more long-term holistic mindset. Um, that, um, uh, that was a, was a great um, uh, exercise. We did that for six or seven years. We raised a lot of money, even in the middle of the financial crisis. And then we had been having this discussion internally for a long time about how do we make this idea of conscious ventures the norm and not the exception, yep. right? Um, And we determined that you couldn't do it through the hedge fund, that you had to do it um, in a different way. It was a grassroots movement. And that, you know, know, long story short, that you had to build startups that were were thinking that way. So I decided I wanted to do that. Um, I left the fund in 2012, and I started writing the business plan for the Conscious Venture Lab. And I called someone who's also been on, your, on the show, I think, with you. I called Julie Lenzer. Uh, yeah. Julie and I have been friends for a long time. And I said, Hey, I'm going to do this thing. I know you know about entrepreneurship. And she said, I want you to come work for me. And she was like, I know you better than that. I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> but, but she said, I love my job and I'm working for this guy. His name is Ken Ullman. He's uh-huh. a county executive in Howard County. And I said, Where's Howard County? And she said, well, we'll work on that in a bit. But I want you to talk to Ken. And Ken just got match uh, with what we were doing. You know, he just said he was thinking differently about the practice of um, economic development. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm not going to steal Lockheed Martin from you guys. And you guys are going to try to steal, you know, McCormick from us and yada, yada, yada. But can we build our own unicorns from the ground up? And then so Ken and I got on the phone and started talking about this notion that the winning businesses of the future were going to be the businesses that thought um, with a conscious mindset. They're in a business that thought with a stakeholder mindset. So he, um, we negotiated, and he decided to give us some money to to launch the Conscious Lab, if we would move the the thing to to to, to Columbia, Maryland, and uh, match it match whatever he was able to to raise for us with investment capital, and that's how we get started, and then sort of the end of the story of the Baltimore part is that, um, you know, did it in Howard County for a few years. Um, You know, we know the story Ken ran for Lieutenant governor that didn't work out and was off to something else. And I was making a commute from DC, to Howard County. And um, um, I decided I got tired of that commute, moved into Baltimore city in January, 2015. And then in April of 2015, Freddie Gray gets killed in the back of a police van. And I was watching what was going on, and I'd become friends with Stephanie Rollins Blake. And I said to her, I said, you know, these riots um, aren't about Freddie Gray. They're about underinvesting in minority communities for the last hundred years. Not you personally, but you know, us as a society. And we got to do something about that. So, sort of a very similar conversation. What should we do? How can we do it? We decided to move from Howard County into West Baltimore, and that we sort started here. So that whole thing is about our evolution, right? First about understanding that there was a new narrative about business that being developed and the way that we practice capitalism could be a, a force for good in society. And then to think about who we wanted to support in that way. And that these, you know, uh, the, 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 the thing that we saw in Baltimore is that we had a less resilient city because we weren't including everyone in the promise of the city. And how could we include everyone in the promise? So those sort of things came together to me. And that's how we sort of came up with this idea to build an accelerator and a venture capital fund to support entrepreneurs who are breaking down barriers to access, who want to use um, business as a force for good in society, and to support entrepreneurs that other people are ignoring. So, you know, in communities, and then people who look like you and me that are are find it difficult to raise money. So... Man,
1: I'm, first of all, thank you for that, and thank you for what you're doing. In a lot of a lot of ways we go, and I know we won't get to all of it. We we'll have to have you back, but um, I, I want to. I'm going to say something. See if you agree or disagree. That I think you know there's there's an interesting kind of continuum that happens. Well, let me back up. That just like a lot of words in the English language, capitalism has been narrowly defined as this uh, whole, only about return to shareholder. And I like the word you use. That there are stakeholders and capitalism, in and of itself, isn't a bad thing. It's it's how it gets used that becomes, if you will, the the, the bad thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the, what a the point is that you know when you know back in the '80s, if you talked about being environmentally conscious, you were called a tree hugger, right? You know, no right. one wanted. To, yeah, yeah. But now all of a sudden, now you have a whole ca- uh, asset allocation around ESG. You have a whole thing around sustainability, and people now get how they can actually make money and you know, save the planet at the same time. Yeah. And so I say that to say, do you see a potential evolution for a, a, this, a, a market segment around? And again, you have social responsible investing, but this notion of conscious capital asset moving its way to being a fundamental part of an asset allocation for, 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 for
2: investors as we move forward. I, I I'm 100% do. And look, when we saw the hedge fund, everyone said, oh, ESG. And we said, no, it's not ESG. That is risk mitigation. We're talking about something much bigger than that, yep. right? This idea that we run businesses, not just for shareholders, but we run businesses to create value for society first. And if yep. you do a great job at that, right, you'll make money. Peter Drucker said, businesses don't make money. Yep. They yep. make shoes, they make glasses, or they make cell phones, right? And if they create a value, for enough people, they'll, they'll make a profit, right? The, the problem we have is that we've been, we've been trained to think about business the other way around, that mm-hmm. the purpose of business is to create value for shareholders. Yep. We know that that's not true. The purpose of business is to create value for customers, for society, for your employees. If you do a good job of it, then shareholders will be rewarded. Right. So we always talk about but greed is got
1: the problem is you, what you describe as greed. That they, right. We've substituted greed for cap capital. That's that's really what happened.
2: A, a good friend of mine, a guy named Joe Carlini, who's an investor in my fund, went to Catholic with me, said to me once, you know, Jeff, capitalism isn't the problem. Capitalists are the problem. There you go. And just like you said, <laughs> they've taken a great idea and you know and implemented it in a way that is unfair that creates that that has unintended consequences that and the greed has seeped in that makes people not care about those things, right? Mm -hmm. And we're saying that in fact, if you take off the shareholder blinders and you start worrying about how do I get my employees to give a damn about this place like I do? How do I get my suppliers to to feel like partners and not like servants? And how do I get communities to welcome me instead of putting barriers access because they believe that I have their interests at heart? And how do I get customers to want to be in a relationship with me and not just transaction? action? There's companies that think with that mindset. If you do those things, if you take care of those four stakeholders, you'll make money, right? So, uh, you know, we always say, if, if all you care about is money, you should do what we say anyway, because you'll make more money. money. <laughs> Right. Um, but the, but it matters how you make the money. Right. Hey, hey, bro,
1: like I said, we go a bunch of different places. I, but won't you give our listeners uh, and viewers uh, an example of, of the type of company that you've invested in, that's that's, that's played out and, and shown this type of example.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it it, it gets to the point where um, we've got a few of them, but there's but we use this one because it's locally certainly is one that a lot of people know, which is Hungry Harvest. We were the first investor in Hungry Harvest. Um, They were doing about forty thousand dollars in revenue when we wrote them our first check um, uh, and and bought five percent of the company. And now I think this year they're they're running the run rate. They're probably running at a rate of about thirty million. They'll probably end end the year. I don't know, somewhere around 25 or something like that. of the numbers at the top of my head, but a significant increase in six or seven years from 40,000 to, you know, to to 30, $40 million in revenue. Um, And the the idea, uh, you know, if you talk to Evan Lutz, he's like, look, 6 billion pounds of food goes to waste every year. And there are 50 million people in the United States that have, uh, that are, Food insecure insecure, means they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Can I take one problem to solve the other? Right. And that's how Hungry Harvest was born. Right. He goes to local farmers and distributors, food that's going to get thrown away because it's aesthetically unpleasing right? Or because of supply chain inefficiencies. He buys it from them. He doesn't ask them to donate. He buys it from them. But since they were going to give it away or throw it away, whatever he pays for is good. So his margins are high because he buys it for pennies on the dollar, much cheaper than you can get it. Then he sells it for much cheaper than you can get in the grocery store. He uses what he is good at to help solve that problem of food insecurity. Right, he's good at logistics. He's good at marketing. Right, he uses those to help solve that problem. What he didn't do is start that business saying, "Hey, I'm going to sell food and make a lot of money." But he's selling food and making a lot of money because of that mission. Right, when you bring those two things, profit and purpose, together, right, that's what ex- that's what's um, propelling that business. So that's a, that's one of that's probably one of the most well known. There's another business that we're really high on. R3 Score. Um, technologies. Um, I don't know if you know them, Lauren Leonard and Teresa Hodge. Yeah. Um, You know, just thinking about the fact that 70 million Americans will have a record um, uh, by 2030. And lots of those were trying to come back into society and reintegrate. And by us not understanding how to deal with previously incarcerated individuals, we're leaving value, talent, money, all on the table, right. So they've created a product that helps bankers and hiring managers understand the real risk of working with uh, previously incarcerated returning citizens, which is much lower than we give it credit for, right. I made uh, made a mistake, paid my dues, want to come back, want to be a a, want to contribute to society. Right now, we don't have a way to think about that so they're developing a way to think about that and we think that's a huge business right
1: part of what i hear you saying jeff uh to put this in for those who may be listening that have a more of a to you want a capitalistic mindset is you you've helping people to see risk in a different way and whether that risk was in the in the food supply chain or in a, a certain demographic of society using the two examples that you just gave and i'm sure you could you can but what I hear you saying, to, to, if I want to go back to my economist class is, you know, because part of investing is trying to mitigate a risk or trying to understand the risk and how do I shield myself or invest my way through the risk. Right. If, if, if I'm using yeah. Traditional. Or, or how so true. what I hear you saying is, no, there's a different way to think about the risk lens and how I invest in into it intentionally.
2: Exactly. Right. I mean, the risk is when people think about risk in different ways, Right. Um, we think about uh, what's the risk of uh, a society where 50 million people are continuously food insecure, right? That's a huge risk. And there's waste happening. And we always know that there's opportunity in waste, right? So it's just a different way, a different lens through which we view the nature of business and the, the nature of risk. So I think that that's right, yeah.
1: You, you haven't used these words, you've alluded to them, but you haven't used, you know, the, the magic words that are being used these last, since, since you know, in this last year of COVID, has been diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I I joke with my friends, I said, I, I think I went down the wrong path because every day I wake up, somebody's getting hired to be somebody's DEI, you know, <laughs> vice president or managing director somewhere. But right. that's become the buzzword for a lot of different things, Right. Yeah, Talk to us, and I know it's, it's a big topic, we will cover it all, but, you know, as you think about what you do at Conscious, how this notion of diversity, equity and inclusion plays out.
2: Yeah, I think that um, yeah, it's, it, there's so many different tentacles know, to that. I know, I know, I know. I mean, I know. I'm, I'm not sure where to go. I mean, there's one we think about from, you know, diversity from investing in diverse founders right? Well, one, it's the right thing to do because, um, you know, everyone, you know, Steve Case always says that, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, talent and intelligence is equally distributed across society. Opportunity is not, not. right? So we should do that. I mean, it's the right thing to do. Oh, and by the way, um, if we're investing in diverse entrepreneurs, um, we're finding ideas that other people aren't finding, which is great for my investors, for me and my investors, right? Because if I find an idea that someone else didn't think of, that's, uh, I have asymmetric information, right? Yep. yep. Um, which is going to create more value in the long yes, run. Sir. So there's yep. that. There's the diversity of thought, right? I mean, we started at our hedge fund, started what we call a diversity um. A, a, a diversity portfolio, which had a lot to do with the makeup of the boards, women and minorities on boards, those boards with more women, particularly and more women and minority minorities on boards, the companies that that have that makeup, they tend to outperform, yeah. right? Yep. Nobody really wants to believe that. But it's true. true. We've it's done true. The, We've yeah. done the work. We know it's true. And that's because of lots of things, not the least of which is diversity of thought right? Um, Diversity of perspective. Um, There's this idea of there are um, big problems that are happening in underrepresented diverse communities that aren't just local problems. So if you solve that problem in one place, you can solve it in hundreds of other places, right? Which drives value. So everywhere you look, Um, If you think about diversity, if you think about equity and you think about inclusion um, through um, uh, and we think about it through I'm a business person. Right. And I think it through a lens of um, creating new businesses and creating value for society. Every time we do that, we find new ways to create value for shareholders, too. So, you know, we always say that our impact, which is investing in diverse communities always drives returns.
1: I love it, Right? I love it. No, I say, I, and some of the listeners may have heard me say this before, that there, there is, and I, and I tell this too among white venture capital Friends, you know, there's this huge multi-billion dollar business that's highly fragmented, chemical based, product marketing based, multi-channel based, very loyal customer base. You know what it's called? Black women's hair care. Yeah. <laughs> I got Tammy on the line probably laughing right now. Yeah, and so,
2: I knew you were going there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and but I say all the time, you know, you, you know, the, the economics there, and yeah. and, and the, 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 the the day that some black woman gets at a venture fund and figures it out, I said, She's gonna lead the rest of y'all And She's to your point, she's gonna make some money and, and have an impact.
2: You know, our boy, Mac McKeever Conwell, he's got an investment in that space. You know, yes, he's he gonna does. make some money on it, you yes, know, he he's going to,
1: right? Yep, and we just get yeah. some money and a potential opportunity and uh, with him as well. So, look, man, um, let's close out. I, I appreciate your time. I told you I was going to have some fun with you. So, a couple, couple of things. So, I'm going to give you the one that I told you I was going to ask you because you, you, said, you <laughs> said you won't think about it. Uh, but I'm going to give you one I didn't tell <laughs> you. Okay. All right. So, I, I told him I was going to ask him. He had to choose between Scooby-Doo and Lassie.
2: Yeah, I'm going to, you know, I, 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 I knew you were going to ask me that, too. And <laughs> I thought about it. And I'm still not sure <laughs> if I know the right answer. But, I, or, or the, I, but I'm going to say Scooby-Doo. Because Scooby Doo more, I mean, Lassie was sort of like the, the, you know, that was more of the 50s. I, you know, I was born in the 60s and then I was watching Scooby Doo. I remember watching Scooby Doo when I was in college still. So I'm going to say Scooby Doo, the whole band, I'm probably more of a Scooby guy.
1: And some of your younger <laughs> listeners, go to YouTube and do, do yeah, search yeah. on Lassie so, yeah. so you can figure out what we're talking about. Okay. Exactly. Here's one, and now, look, I'm a huge um, uh, comic book fan. Uh, do the whole, I've done the whole Marvel Cinematic and yeah. DC. So here's a question for you: What superpower would you choose? But you can't choose flight or super strength. What's your
2: superpower you want to have? Oh, definitely, I want to read people's minds. <laughs> oh, look at you! Yeah, yeah, no question about it. I want, I want, I want to have. they so just yeah. want to read
1: their minds. You don't want to control. You don't want.
2: Exactly. No, 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 I don't want to control. I want. I want asymmetric information.
1: <laughs> I'm an investor. As an investor. That would be.
2: <laughs> yeah. I no. Know, I no. Know people. Don't know. <laughs> oh,
0: that's.
2: A good you know, that's it's. You know, now, now, my sisters. If my sisters listen to this, they will say. You know, the superpower, you know, you did you watch uh, Game of Thrones? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My sister said he has a superpower. He's like Tyrion. He drinks and he knows things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> On that, you and I got to get together and do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, I, we, I, I, owe you, I owe you a cocktail. I know that. Yes,
1: absolutely. I told you my, my superpower is speed, super speed. Speed,
2: okay. Because so
1: with that, because if you really understand super speed, man, there's a lot of cool stuff you could do. Is so you could change time, You yeah, can go yeah. through Walls, you could do some real. But reading minds not a bad. You know, controlling minds a whole nother. as a whole nother level. You no, know,
2: I, I don't want to control people's minds. I mean, look, if I know what's if they're if I know what they're thinking, then I could use some my knowledge to sort of get them around to my way of thinking. But yeah, I got you. Got you. Jeff, brother, I appreciate you. Appreciate
1: what you're doing. Uh, we will continue to do stuff together. I know. Uh, we, obviously, we already have some deal flow between our two entities, and yep. we'll continue to do so, but we'll get together. Thank you for, for being with us today uh, on Techco Talks, and I really appreciate you.
2: T, always a pleasure to spend time with you, and uh, let's get together and do it in person soon.
1: Absolutely. And to our listeners, again, thank you all. We appreciate you. Continue your continued, continued comments, your continued support of Techco Talks. Again, this is Troy Lamel sobal signing off. See you next time.
0: Thanks again for listening, and a special thank you to our guest, Jeff Cherry, for joining in today's discussion. For more information on TechCo and its activities, check us out at www.tedcomd.com. If you enjoyed today's discussion, consider sharing and subscribing to TechCo Talks.